As I was working on pulling together people who are experts at communicating social science to the public, people kept suggesting that I talk to one person in particular, David Nussbaum, which was great because I had already talked to him. He was at the top of my list too. David is a social psychologist who teaches at the Booth School of Business at the University of Chicago, and I think he first popped on my radar years ago when I went to a panel discussion on sharing social psychology with the public at a major conference. David organized it and was super generous with his offer to help anyone who might be interested in publishing an op-ed based on their research. And for a long time, I think it was quietly understood that if you're a social psychologist and you have an idea for an op-ed, you go find David Nussbaum. But that understanding doesn't seem so quiet anymore. Just a few months ago, David launched a nonprofit organization called Psychgeist Media. I talked to David back in December, before the site officially went live, but it is very much in the world now. The, the website describes the organization as helping researchers share their research with the public in an accurate and engaging way. Which, if you're listening to this podcast, there's a reasonably good chance that's interesting to you. You can sign up for a very useful monthly newsletter if you go to their website, and you maybe even found your way to this podcast because of that newsletter. It's great. L lots of links, lots of cool... I found like a whole bunch of cool resources on it already in just the last couple months. And you can also be on the lookout for all sorts of initiatives by Psychgeist to help researchers expand their reach. It's not just op-eds, it's all kinds of things that David has plans for. But since he's really known for op-eds, I wanted to pick David's brain on the subject for this podcast, which I don't think I've introduced. So for the record, <laughs> welcome to episode four of Hot SciComm Summer, a special mini-series of the podcast Opinion Science, where I talk with a range of science communicators about their work and how scientists, journalists, and anyone else can become more effective communicators. And as I said, David's the guy to talk to when it comes to op-eds. He's helped land articles in major outlets like the New York Times, Washington Post, Los Angeles Times, The Atlantic, Wall Street Journal, Scientific American. I mean, I, I guess I should just say all the places. <laughs> so I asked David about how he became the social science op-ed guru, what makes for a compelling op-ed piece, and what we can expect from Psychgeist Media now and moving forward. So here we go. You know, you've, you've very much carved out this path that went from sort of the traditional psychology uh, research route into this domain of public engagement with uh, psychology in various forms of media. And so what, what, why, why make that shift? What, what is it that, that brought you to doing the stuff that you do now? So uh, it's mostly personal history. Um, I was on the fence about a research career for a long time. Um, I didn't have the patience it took to do the kinds of things that research required. Uh, my dissertation, I think, lasted uh, 11 years from conception to publication, um, and I was a little sick of it, frankly, by like year three. The shift happened, though. Uh, my wife got a job here at the University of Chicago, um, where I've now been teaching, uh, via nepotism for, uh, for about a decade. And I wasn't going to drag her to some other job that where we could both get a job um, that would be a step down for her and would be something that I wasn't even really sure 
I wanted to be doing. Uh, so I was in this really lucky, privileged position where I had a good job uh, teaching. It was an adjunct position. So I was teaching 10 weeks a year. It's now actually nine weeks a year. Um, left me 42 weeks to figure out what I was going to be when I grow up. And I really wanted to stay connected to this field that I loved um, and to the people who, who were in it, who were doing all this research that I, I continued to, um, to consider a really core part of my identity. And I set out to figure out how to do that. And the two paths that, I was, that seemed really interesting and attractive to me were translating psychology into policy. And so I've done a bunch of that. I can happy to talk about that more. Um, and then translating psychology into English. And that started with um, me doing some writing, starting my own blog. But pretty quickly, I picked up the reins of the blog for SBSB, which I wouldn't say I launched because there was a blog there, but there was about one entry every four months. Uh, and the person running the blog was a real mensch who, who was doing everything he could, but what he took on was not the blog, it was the website. And he ended up getting really bogged down in sort of member services and getting people refunds for their memberships that didn't go through and couldn't really spend much time on the blog. So I relaunched that blog and that was the beginning of what I do. Really uh, serendipity helped because I was hustling around writing blog posts that got 150 views and I was excited by that. And then the, the blog, the SPSB blog launched uh, called Character and Context, which still is, is active today. Um, and we get 500 views or 1,000 views or 2,000 views on some big stories. And then one day, an editor from the New York Times reached out to my wife. They had the same last name. And he thought, oh, maybe, maybe uh, we're related. He, was, he just happened, happened upon it. He was looking at the Booth website, looking for a friend of his uh, from, from college. And so it turns out they're not related. But he found her research on superstition really interesting and reached out to her. And he was editing a column that is sadly now defunct uh, that came out in the New York Times Sunday Review called Gray Matter. And they would publish something on social science and usually psychology every Sunday or almost every Sunday. So she, she, he asked her to write about superstition. She was like, nah, do you want to do it? She asked me. And I, I, we did it together. So. Uh, we co-wrote that blog that was back, that uh, column, uh, that was in 2013. And that began a relationship that I had where the things that I would try to put on the SBSB blog, when they seemed like they really deserved a bigger audience, I would send to the New York Times. And once in a while, and then increasingly, the, they would publish them. And that sort of began what I do, I do now. What a bizarre, that as a story, that's great. <laughs> like, <laughs> Under what circumstances would that lightning bolt happen where someone's just like, oh, are we related? Yeah. <laughs> oh, and also, like, let's uh, have a career moment for uh, your partner. <laughs> yeah, it really it really shifted um, what I do in some ways. It certainly accelerated it and pushed it in a direction where it occurred to me that that this was something that was a really useful gap to fill that. You know, if the way that the New York Times is finding people to write for them is scouring random websites, right. <laughs> there's got to be a, w a better way to, to do it. And so that's sort of the role that I filled in sort of a little bit at a time. So it was a favor here and there. And then it became a bit of a hobby where uh, 
you know, I'd look for people. I'd be like, oh, you know, I talked to the New York Times editor and they're looking for things. Your research seems, seems, uh, seems like it could be a good fit. But then I would end up with pitches that the New York Times thought were interesting, but not, not publishable uh, for whatever reason. And so it seemed like they should find another home. And so I started building relationships with, you know, the LA Times and the Washington Post. And now we have hundreds of pieces and dozens of outlets. Uh, and it sort of really just grew organically uh, over time. I don't know if I would have got there if not for this, this serendipitous connection. Uh, but it was something that I was ready to jump on at least when when there was that knock at the door. Uh, this just, I think, pushed things in the right direction with a real, real uh, useful, useful shove. So, so you were you were managing this blog, um, and then, as you said, occasionally, one of the uh, articles that would come through the blog seems to be sort of big enough that it would be worth pitching to somewhere like the New York Times. So, could you kind of differentiate like the kind of article that makes sense as just a blog article, and the kind of article that makes you go, oh? maybe this deserves a bigger audience. Like what, what features are you keeping an eye out for? So what I've learned over time is that there's a lot of things that you wouldn't necessarily think of as front page New York Times articles that thought of framed in a way that, that makes them accessible can be. So there's not a bright line, but there's certainly things that, that I look for. But mostly I kind of try to take the perspective of the average reader and think about when I see that, that um, article title, or I read that abstract, do I think, Oh, that's interesting. I'd love to know about more about that. And that's contaminated obviously by my own, uh, by my own interests. But I was just uh, reaching out uh, today to, to Brian Lucas, who's got a new paper on two different uh, approaches to creativity. And that when you think about creativity in these two different ways, the way you approach creativity, you do creative work changes. That's just on the face of it seems really interesting. Um, something that a lot of people might might be interested in, in a way that some papers are not, right? Some papers are just inside baseball, like a scale development paper, or I just got a pitch recently about how many billions of dollars of service uh, psychologists do editing and reviewing articles that are unpaid and all the, all the profits go to Elsevier and all these, uh, all these companies, which is really interesting to psychologists, but nobody else cares. Like cry me a river. You, you got a problem, <laughs> figure it out. Um, and so I don't turn down many pitches, but sometimes it's a question of where, where they belong. So the creativity pitch might not end up in the New York times, although it could, um, it might end up at a sort of uh, outlet where I was thinking like fast company that they're all about design and creativity and they would be particularly interested. Although it's worth really thinking. Uh, I was having a conversation yesterday where um, we were discussing the idea that there's not enough psychology in less highbrow outlets, right? The, we've done a couple of pieces for the USA Today, for instance, about uh, vaccination. Uh, and what leads people to to, to be vaccine hesitant. Um, but there's plenty of room for psychology. People are really interested in psychology. I mean, anybody who's taught a psychology class knows that everybody's an amateur psychologist. And so they love, they love thinking about these sorts of things. The other big thing that the big currency in op-eds and what 
editors like to put out in, in the newspaper is counterintuitiveness. And that, again, it's an art form because science in some way is, can be counterintuitive. It can be really surprising, but fundamentally it shouldn't be, right? So fundamentally, science is incremental. And I really try to push back against the idea that new findings should blow your mind because findings that blow your mind probably are blowing your mind because they're not really true or they're true in a very narrow uh, in a very narrow sense. And so the art of pitching findings that are, that are incremental is to present them in a way that the novelty is obvious to the reader um, or to the editor who's the gatekeeper to, to the reader. Because there's a hindsight bias that you get immediately as you read an article where the author tells you something new and people's instinctive reaction is, well, I already knew that. Even if that's not at all true, even if I could have told you the exact opposite thing <laughs> and you would have said, well, I knew that too, because you have these theories and these theories are contradictory uh, and that doesn't matter uh, because you apply them sort of uh, more or less haphazardly. You're not, you're not uh, publishing them in a, in a journal. And so when you hear that one side is, is true, that, that seems consistent with what you kind of thought all along. Um, and so presenting things in a way that makes clear what, what is novel, how else we might have been thinking about this, and what part of that is true or not true. So there is often novelty, right? I'm working on a piece right now uh, with a researcher at Duke about how conservatives get uh, are sort of on the hook for sharing most of fake news. But his research finds that it actually it's not all conservatives. It's a particular subset of conservatives. And that's new. That's something we didn't know before. And that's interesting. It has, it has various implications. But other work is sort of, I'm working with uh, on work uh, around New Year. There's a lot of work on motivation. And a lot of motivational science, there are things we know, and they're not, they're not necessarily breakthroughs that Right, do these three things, and your motivation is going to be completely jumpstarted. They're just basic, uh, basic insights, but they're not insights that people necessarily know. They could really benefit uh, from them, and they're they're often doing things based on the wrong implicit theories, the wrong sort of intuitions about how motivation works, and these can be extraordinarily helpful. So, another piece I'm working on right now. Um, and it should be coming out in Time Magazine early in the new year by Ayala Fischbach. Uh, people think of resolutions as these things that should be serious. And these are things that you need to commit to and think about as, you know, this year I'm really going to eat well, or this year I'm really going to make sure I exercise uh, consistently. And the truth is almost the opposite. You really want to think about how to make that experience fun because that's what's going to make you stick to it. If it's a serious, boring chore, You'll stick to it while you're in serious, boring mode for the first three weeks of the year, and then you're going to give up. But if you've got a friend that you like going running with, or if you enjoy the foods on your diet rather than you know have to hold your nose and, and you know swallow them uh, down, you're way more likely to stick to your motivations. And in some ways, that's one of exactly the example of a thing that you might read and be like, oh, that's obvious. Of course, you should like the things that you do. But that's not what people, that's not how people are thinking of it generally. And correcting that mistake, even if people don't realize it's a correction, it's just like 
re-emphasizing something that they knew all along um, can be extraordinarily valuable. So, so the, the conversation about novelty and counterintuitiveness and what are readers looking for kind of raises the question of like, what is ultimately the purpose of this activity. So you mentioned you, you kind of uh, distinguish between translating to policy and translating to English. And translating to policy is kind of a very clear like, okay, I, I totally buy that that is a, a necessary and life-changing way of using social science. Mm-hmm. But when you think about like, why write an article for the New York Times about some studies that some psychologists did? Are you thinking about like, like, ultimately, why do we do that? Why, why would we want to do that? Yeah, so there's a few different answers at kind of different different levels. Um, the most basic one, and the one that's sort of in mind for me most of the time, is just because it's interesting. I love this stuff. A lot of people find it really interesting, and so they want to read it. And just that intrinsic version of forget that it's useful, forget anything else. Uh, it's fun to read. This was an interesting study. There's no reason why it should be restricted to the 11 people who read it in the journal article. Let's share it with the world. And that's really something that, you know, as a field, every NSF grant, grant asks you to explain. How are you disseminating this, this to the public? They're funding our research. Uh, the least we can do is, is tell them what, what it is that we're doing. Um, on a broader level, I think it's really useful to really incrementally help people think of the psychological angle, the psychological lens to take to various issues. Personal issues, of course, that's, those are pretty easy. But these much bigger issues, um, psychology isn't the only angle to take, but neither is economics the only angle to take or, or, or politics. Um, so where does psychology belong in the ecosystem of ideas and lenses to take to a problem? When you forget that the sorts of policies you want to implement are psychological or are going to be implemented in people who have psychologies. It's really important to understand what that psychology is. Um, so that, I guess, is, is a, a bit of a policy answer. But for the public to really recognize and appreciate that getting the psychology, understanding the psychology, um, being fluent and thinking the way a psychologist thinks, while it isn't the only way to think, if you if that perspective is absent, which it is to a much greater degree than I would like it to be, then, the, then you have this big blind spot. And so we're trying to fill that blind spot with, to use a metaphor that I probably uh, am not well equipped to use, the way it's sort of, a, you know, a pointillist draws in these little dots and it turns into a, it turns into a picture. Or I don't know if you know the, the Chuck Close kind of you make you make a picture out of a bunch of smaller pictures, and when you zoom out, you see it that all the little pictures make a big picture. Each one contributes to a public understanding of psychology and what what it is we do and what that perspective adds to your understanding of the world. Yeah, I do think the sort of proliferation of popular psychology books and media and articles has really I kind of uh, helped to address that issue of people thinking psychology means therapy and, you know, clinical practice, which of course it does. But that was like the only public image of psychology for so long. And I do think that people do have more of an appreciation, right, as, you know, 
podcasts like Hidden Brain, I feel like is one of those that is like so like heavily consumed and has done such a service to being like, oh, social science is this actually this thing that that studies these questions and all these articles that show up in, in newspapers and magazines to be like, oh, psychologists found. <laughs> and in yeah. some ways, yeah, owning that word. I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm fairly quick oftentimes to distance myself from the word and refer to myself as a social scientist in these kind of public spheres. But that might actually be doing a disservice to <laughs> the public image of psychological science as its own brand of stuff yeah, in the world. The other rebranding that we've undergone is calling ourselves behavioral science, which has been extraordinarily useful, but but resented mm-hmm. by psychologists to the extent that, well, it's psychology, let's, let's <laughs> own it. Um, but I, I can see merit to sort of at least marrying the two and, mm-hmm. and bringing in more uh, more converts through the lens of behavioral science, which just sounds more sciencey than uh, the version where you stand on the, where you, you imagine a person lying on the couch and telling somebody about their dreams mm-hmm. uh, and, and having somebody interpret them. So so let's jump into the process. So I, I had asked you to nominate uh, a recent article that we could sort of track the trajectory of its uh, movement from idea to, to final printed thing. Um, and, and you had sent this uh, Washington Post article by Nick Epley and crew about um, having deep conversations with strangers. And so... Using this as a model, I'm wondering if we could kind of step through, like, let's imagine someone has the idea for something. What are all the pieces that need to happen before it actually becomes an article in the Washington Post? Um, and, and maybe it takes several hits before you get to that place, as it sounds like was the case with this one. So in this example, if you could just sort of like like a two-sentence summary of what this article was about, just to give some context, and then what was step one of this becoming an article in the Washington Post? So the article is about new research uh, that's part of a larger program of research, but this research finds that people underestimate how much others are interested in having more than a superficial relationship, going beyond small talk. Uh, They want to share something with other people, but they assume that other people aren't that interested. And it turns out actually they are interested and people prefer those conversations and recognizing that people want to have those conversations opens the door to actually, uh, actually having them. When you actually have them, everybody's happier. You're happier. The other person's happier. And really those sorts of conversations are the sort of at the essence of a, of a kind of lives that we like that are rewarding. This article started with, um, with a draft, which is a, a little unusual. I often start with a pitch, so I'm happy to talk more about that. But this one, there was already a draft in place. Um, Nick sent me the draft, and it was my job then to figure out a, a good way to pitch this. Uh, you need to get you need to get an editor's attention, and you need to do it really pretty quickly because their inboxes are overflowing with with pitches. One advantage that I have is that having pitched hundreds of these. I've managed to build up a relationship with editors so they recognize my name. Um, and there's some value to them of sort of keeping up that relationship because I'm a ongoing source of material that they like to publish. But that didn't help very much. I sent it around a bunch of places before it got in. Uh, this isn't so unusual. It was, it was very close. It, we pitched it to the New York times and they liked it, but it just wasn't quite uh didn't quite clear the bar. The New York Times bar these days is particularly hard to clear. 
but that was one of six or seven pitches that I, I pitched to the New York Times uh, in one go. And that was the one they wanted to hear more of. So they were interested in it, but it didn't quite clear the bar. Um, not a very unusual uh, situation. A good sign, really, that if the New York Times almost published it, that this should have legs. Uh, but the same thing happened. Um, we went to the Atlantic. And the Atlantic um, can be a little bit slow getting back to us. So it's sort of lingered there for two or three weeks before we we got a thanks. This sounds great, but it's not going to work for us. Um, by the way, rejection is something you get very used to in this in this field. Um, persistence is really important because there's a lot of noise in the process. You could have pitched it on Tuesday and it, it would have got in, but by Wednesday, it's not. Um, and so you really can't take it personally. Although for me, that's particularly easy because it's not it's not my baby the same way as it is for an author. Uh, so then we pitched it to the Los Angeles Times, and I had pretty high hopes for it there. It seemed like a good fit with their their uh, their sensibilities, um, and there it just their queue was kind of filled up, and so we started to kind of lose hope. I generally would land a piece like that, meaning I would find some place to put it where it wouldn't have the reach it would have where it ended up in the Washington Post, but. Um, Getting something published anywhere is a worthwhile thing to do, even if the place isn't uh, doesn't have a circulation of millions. Because as long as it's got a reasonably reliable brand, a lot of the circulation of these pieces happens on social media. And so, very often you can put a piece into the your local newspaper, and it can pick up traction. It won't pick up as much traction as it will from the New York Times, but it's. It's not worth giving up just because it didn't get uh, in one of the top tier outlets. It won't look as good on your CV, but most people aren't really doing this for their for their CV anyway. Maybe for their mom to show. I've had great stories actually of people. As I actually the, that first piece I told you that we wrote, uh, my best friend's mom who lives in in Israel read the article and it was like, oh, that's great. I wonder who wrote it, and it turned out to be. My wife and I. Uh, so, <laughs> so the reach is kind of amazing sometimes. But to return to the to this Washington Post article, we had almost given up uh, when we decided. All right, let's try let's try the Washington Post. Um, those are the, kind of the top outlets I generally go to: uh, New York Times, LA Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, The Boston Globe. Time Magazine is a new one that I've been trying. But usually, once you go to two or three, you strike out. It can be worth going to the next three or four, but sometimes it's worth you know cutting your losses and deciding for whatever reason that I didn't necessarily anticipate this story doesn't quite have the traction. Uh, turns out that would have been a mistake here because the Washington Post jumped on it. They loved it. And the story's done really well. I don't have the numbers sort of organically for what happened at the Washington Post, but I've seen it picked up in any number of places hmm. that sort of curate the news uh, and share things about psychology The it really got a lot of traction. It resonated with a lot of people. So, so to be clear, so th there was a draft, but but when you were reaching out, you weren't sending this draft, right? You were sending your pitch of the article. So because there was a draft, I was sending a pitch and attaching the draft. Usually the way I try to work with academics is I try to minimize the upfront investment that may end up going nowhere. Because that's a big barrier to people writing is that they feel like they're going to have to spend hours and hours doing it. And then it's going to flop and go nowhere, particularly if they have to do it themselves, right? So you send it to the 
Washington Post mailbag, and three weeks later you haven't got a response because most things don't get a response. If they do, it's often from an intern who doesn't really know good writing from bad writing, interesting science from uninteresting science. And so it's just kind of a, a bit of a dead end. So by going with a pitch process, what I'm doing is I'm asking for a very small upfront investment, 15 minutes or so to come up with a pitch. We polish it together. And then you get to kind of sit back and relax until I come back to you and say, uh, the New York Times is interested or the you know Houston Chronicle is interested. Then you write the draft. And the advantage of writing the draft then is that you can suit it, you can fit it to the publication you're, you're writing for. So a New York Times piece is not going to look the same as a piece in the Harvard Business Review or Time Magazine. They, they have different formats, different sensibilities, different lengths. And you can also get some feedback from the editor who says, you know, here's your pitch. I'm really only interested in that second part. The first part, you can cut that. Uh, so instead of writing, spending hours drafting that part, you can start. Uh, you can start without it. Um, but most importantly, your chance of success is now massively increased. So I would estimate sort of five to fifty times more likely to to get in at, at, at any given place. Hmm. Some places you're saying, you're saying it's more likely to get in if you start as a pitch than submitting a full draft. If the pitches, if they greenlight the pitch. If they greenlight the pitch, some outlets are just committed to it at that point. Um, so you can think of it as, as on the sort of R&R continuum. Some places will give you an R&R, &R and, and there's still a pretty good chance they're going to pull the plug uh, at some point because you haven't satisfied what they, what they want. Um, and they, they hand out these green lights a little bit more liberally. They, sure, I, I'll take a look at, at a draft of that and then go, no, sorry, not for me. Um, but a lot of places, um, first of all, you can get a pretty good sense of how serious they, they are about it, but also they're pretty committed. So the LA Times is a great example. The, the editor there, once she's committed to a piece, she's going to make it work. Um, and so now the, the expected value of writing that draft is massively higher. And so it's a, it's a commitment that you can, at the very least, you know what you're getting into. You can enter it with open eyes rather than this sort of dark corridor where you really don't know uh, what's on the other side. There's not a lot of extrinsic reward for writing for the public. You're not going to get tenure because you wrote for the public or a promotion or a job. Increasingly, people look at it as a, as a good thing rather than <laughs> not such a good thing as they, they might have used to. Or worse, right? The sort of there, – there was a – I think of it in the sort of pre-Dan Gilbert era before he wrote Stumbling on Happiness. The idea of sharing your research with the public, like it's not what a scientist does. Um, and that's part of our project too, is to normalize that and to bring more voices to, to the forefront. That's what I'm hoping to be able to do with uh, the nonprofit is to really kind of systematically thinking about representation and who's, whose voice gets out there. So to, to circle back to the, the, the small talk article. Yes. So when you, there was a draft and then you made it into a pitch and just to kind of crystallize, like what makes a good pitch? In this example, like what were you emphasizing? How were you selling this idea? Like what was your theory <laughs> behind why this characterization of this article is going to be of interest to these outlets? So there's a few things to, to, to keep in mind in a, in a pitch. Um, one is just mechanical, just to keep it short, because you want somebody to look at it when they open the email and 
not just go, oh, I'll read this later. Um, the intention to read it later is often legitimate and sincere, but it doesn't actually happen. Um, so you want to give it away in a short period of time and really get to the point um, with as little sort of throat clearing as possible. Within that small amount of, of uh, real estate that you have available, um, you want to connect it to the current moment in some way. Answer the question, why now? There are exceptions. Sometimes there's very evergreen articles that you pitch in that vein, but usually you want it to be relevant to people's current lives. So in the case of this article, this was written in uh, in a lull of the pandemic, sort of uh, post-Delta, pre-Omicron. I don't know if post-Delta is a, is a thing, actually, <laughs> but people were starting to be double vaccinated and boosted and the kids were being uh were being vaccinated and so there was a sense that we were sort of re-emerging into the social world and as we did our social skills had become eroded and within that context the idea of you know small talk seemed like the last thing you really want to do um and here was sort of an antidote Really, you don't need small talk. What you want to do is have have real conversations. And is that uh, really even true? I don't know. Sometimes you just need to hook the reader in and make it feel relevant for the moment. Sometimes it's very obvious that something is relevant to a particular uh, a particular event or a particular occasion. So we write a lot. New Year's is coming up or Thanksgiving just happened. We write, there's a lot of articles that end up getting written about like how to have uh, productive conversations with your family or how to make resolutions. But the hook doesn't have to be so direct, but it should feel that it's not random, that this is, it's connected to something that's actually happening. And then we get to the, the idea of counterintuitiveness. So how do you frame this finding so that people don't, think, well, of course, nobody likes small talk and we should have, um, we should have deeper conversations uh, because that's the, that's the go-to for almost any, any pitch is to, is to say, well, we already knew that. And so the framing there has to, has to, I mean, the trick that is easiest to use is to lead people along the wrong intuition. Everybody thinks A, but actually B. Um, and as long as the the intuition that's the foil here is a plausible intuition, and it usually is, that sort of approach works. You highlight for people that the the opposite of your finding or or the absence of your finding is is the way people often think, or is at least a very plausible way to think. Malcolm Gladwell is the is the, the king of this sort of approach, where usually in sort of a longer form article, but he will open up by explaining something very obvious and has the reader nodding along going, yes, obviously this is true. And you get two or three paragraphs in, which you can't do in an op-ed, but in a longer form piece you can, you get two or three paragraphs in and suddenly says, well, none of that is true, which is usually an exaggeration, (laughs) but really does the trick of making you feel, giving you sort of the metacognitive feeling that you're learning something new. And what you're trying to do is mirror that uh, in in a much smaller space. And speaking to the editor to whom you're pitching, you want 
them to have the impression that their readers will feel like they're learning something they didn't already know. Um, and so for this piece, it was pretty easy because you just had to describe what they find that people actually really think. People do actually really think that nobody's interested in hearing about the struggles you're having with your mother-in-law. They're interested in, they, they just want to say, well, how are you doing? Fine. Nice weather we're having. Uh, and people can resonate with the intuition that it feels like it's going to be awkward to have this deep conversation. People have a hard time initiating it. Uh, and so it's not hard to make the, the case that, well, the evidence actually shows that, that that is a misapprehension. And so that making that counterintuitive was not, not particularly difficult. There's other cases where it's, it takes a lot more work to, to frame something as, as non-obvious. Um, because sometimes the best science is obvious. It's just a, it's a, it's something that culturally we may have known for a long time. Uh, but it wasn't scientifically proven, and there were other hypotheses that you might have might have entertained. And so, you know, I was telling you earlier about motivation, right? There's a lot of intuitions about how best to motivate yourself, and it's not like nobody ever thought of the idea that you know running with friends rather than running alone is is better. But we didn't really understand how much better or why and what parts of um, what parts of running with a friend are, are really doing the work and what parts are sort of superfluous. And so packaging that in a way that helps the editor recognize that this will be useful and interesting to their reader rather than sort of a, an eye roll, be like, oh, yeah, that's obvious. I already knew that uh, is, is really the, the other key to an effective pitch. So to the point of uh, the counterintuitive thing, one thing that I noticed that was interesting in this article is this paragraph toward the end that's like, a, but of course, it wouldn't always be the case that like you want to have the deepest conversations with everyone. And it does strike me that there is this kind of like, you know, the scientist perspective is always to say like, but like we have to acknowledge <laughs> The reason I thought of it is as you're describing like the reader going like, oh, wow, I kept thinking, well, there's got to be readers who go, well, that doesn't match my intuition. And so I'm going to discard it. And so that's kind of a, a nice way to kind of capture both a scientific caveat and also a nod to the reader who's skeptical to say, like, listen, we know we're not trying to say this is like the absolute truth of the world. Um, but it is it does strike me that it's an important tightrope to walk where you don't undermine everything you just said, but you're also um, being honest and truthful and true to the scientific spirit. So I'm just curious, you've done so many of these and working especially in the psychology space. How do you approach the necessity of those kinds of caveats and framing them in a way that makes sense to the bigger goal of the article? Yeah, it's a great question because you want to be careful not to undermine yourself. But also, you really want to be careful about generalization, because most of the time we're taking things, even field studies, um, don't generalize across contexts perfectly. You're giving somebody insights into the psychology rather than necessarily a recipe for how to live their lives. But as much as you, you might believe that, it's still going to be picked up often as like, oh, I learned 
that I'm supposed to do these three things in this order. And then, you know, my life will be, you know, 12% better. And we don't have those kinds of answers and we don't want to pretend that we have those kinds of answers. Um, right. So the insight from this, this article is not necessarily that you want to give your life story to every person you sit next to on the bus. It's that when you would like to go deeper with somebody and you're feeling awkward about it to correct that a little bit, to, 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 um, to correct that, that intuition to say, well, maybe, maybe let's try. Um, is it always going to work? No, not necessarily. And so the question is, how do you convey that you're only sort of giving broad advice, not, not, uh, not the science of how conversations work, even though they've been studied scientifically, there is not a science that, that, that will tell you exactly across all situations and all people and all contexts, how that's, how that's going to happen. So transparency is really useful. It's really useful to draw a line between um, what your research says and where speculation begins. And it's often nice to speculate a little bit. So if you signal that it, it helps give the reader um, to demarcate those two things, but it also reminds them that sort of what came earlier was sort of the lab version and what comes later um, doesn't have data supporting it, um, but is really kind of the most, the most useful implication. So I'm working with a researcher here um, at the university of Chicago, who's doing research, developmental psychology research on kids uh, worried about raising their hands to ask questions in class because it'll make them look dumb. And this is something that they find sort of develops around six to seven years of age, which is earlier than most people had anticipated. And understanding that this concern about not, not seeming smart if you put your hand up and ask a question is something that could be on people's minds, on kids' minds, is a really important insight for teachers to, to appreciate what's going on, for parents to communicate with their kids sort of the values um, that it's important to be learning, for instance, but they don't have any data on putting it out in the world. And so it's really uh, this, the second part of the, the article clearly sort of demarcates. So the implications here that, that we don't have data for, but we're, we're speculating and it's informed speculation, but it's speculation nonetheless, Here's the kinds of things you could consider. Uh, how do you normalize question asking? How do you make it seem like um, that learning is valued and that just being smart is, is, not, uh, is not the goal? That can make it clear to people that here are things that you could try, uh, but also makes clear to people that what came before the science is does not necessarily generalize. Otherwise, I tell you, here are the things you have to do. Here's step one. Step two, step three, we've tried all these things and they work. Um, that's not where the science is at. And so it helps make it clear. But it's a challenge. I think you're totally right that it's a fair criticism that many articles will leave uh, at least some readers feeling like we have a, a better answer, a more complete answer than we actually do. And so throwing in some caveats is helpful even if just to kind of remind the reader that science is incomplete and fallible, uh, but this is our best, our best uh, attempt so far. 
Nice. Um, so uh, by means of wrapping up, I wanted to make sure I gave you a chance to talk about Zeitgeist and what it is and why you're doing it <laughs> and uh, what people who want to make use of it or be part of that community should do, where they should go to find more. Mm -hmm. So as I was telling you at the beginning, this whole enterprise started serendipitously. And then I would do a favor or two to somebody who who wrote to me and said, hey, can you send my thing into the New York Times? Then it expanded and I was doing it. It was a bit of a hobby. Uh, and I would do you know one every month or two. And right now I've got probably 20 to 25 of these op-eds on my desk at any given time. And it had become apparent that it was unsustainable. Um, this work was 95% at least pro bono work. Um, it's not particularly lucrative, so it was never uh, a big goal to to um, to make money off it. But it became sort of starting to become expensive to do uh, to do this. Um, and so the goal is to build a sustainable uh, organization that's going to be Zeitgeist Media. That's a play on the term Zeitgeist because it's the psychology that's sort of in the air that people are talking about and are relevant to the things that we are uh, we're thinking about. What we want to do is we want to build not really a consulting uh, outfit, but it's a nonprofit and we want to make it into a community because there's a lot of people uh, in the field who are interested in communicating psychology and we want to make them stakeholders uh, and do this together. I'm obviously in a position where I can do a lot of the heavy lifting and be the, the linchpin, but I want everybody to be uh, involved who, who wants to be part of this, this undertaking. So it's going to be a membership organization. Uh, it's going to launch in February of 2022. Before then, we have a Twitter account, Zeitgeist Media, at Zeitgeist Media. Um, and if you want to contribute, we you can go to our uh, provisional website. The full website will be up in January, but the provisional website uh, has a form there. You can sign up for a newsletter. That's at zeitgeistmedia.org. And out of the gate, the goal is to do what we've been doing all along, to start with our core uh, strengths, which is op-eds. But we've recognized that the same pitch that can be a pitch to the New York Times or the Washington Post can also be a pitch for a podcast. Uh, I'm not well networked into the podcast world. I know the people at Hidden Brain, for instance, or, or Freakonomics, but uh, this is a place where a space that we would love to develop into um and the more people sort of drag us in that direction and are willing to uh contribute to that uh the faster we'll get there same with support of books a lot of people are writing books as as you may have noticed um but a lot of people are forced to reinvent the wheel with only a little bit of help and so we're looking to to support that too with a resource about what to expect uh what big decisions you're going to need to make and the and some uh, community, which also is something that a lot of authors are are looking for. People who are have been or are in the same sort of uh, same process in the trenches with them, and other other forms of media, uh, video and newsletters, and any any space that people want to pull us, even if we don't uh, have the bandwidth to make a big investment in it, we're as a platform, we're happy to, uh, to, to support that and help catalyze it. Uh, I think there's a lot of things that are hard to do independently that having a, a meeting place, having a platform to support them 
will be will make it a lot easier. So we're super excited to see what what the next year brings. I think we're taking that as entirely a learning experience. Um, there's a lot of management that I am have no expertise in <laughs> that I'm going to have to learn on the fly, uh, and so I'm prepared for a lot of surprises. Um, so if by the end of the year we're roughly where we were at the beginning of the year, that's totally fine. But I'm also really excited to to see where uh, where things take us. Because uh, the thing that I found in the last decade of doing this is that there are a lot of people who are very interested in sharing uh, the research that we do and are excited to do it and have some difficulty making that happen. And on the other side, there's a lot of people who are really interested in it. And so to the extent that, um, that we can build that bridge to, to connect those two sides, uh, I think there will be a lot of a lot of enthusiasm for that. It feels like to date, I've been in a sort of a little boat rowing across back and <laughs> forth, and the goal is to build a bridge and to not really be necessary. That if I if I disappeared, uh, got hit by a bus five years from now, that this this bridge would still be in place and we would be able to to do this effectively and sustainably as a field. Very cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to, to seeing how this thing grows. And uh, also just want to say thanks for taking the time to talk. My pleasure. And thanks for having me. Thank you so much to David Nussbaum for taking the time to share his story and what he knows. He's done an incredible service to the field of social science. His new organization, again, is called Psychgeist Media, which is at psychgeistmedia.org. Or if you don't know how to spell that, you can just check out the episode webpage for a link. Sign up for their newsletter. Consider being a member. You'll be in very good company. This series on social science communication is a special presentation of my podcast, Opinion Science, a show about the science of our opinions, where they come from, and how they change. You can subscribe any old place where they have podcasts, and be sure to check out opinionsciencepodcast.com for links to things that came up in this episode. I don't know if you hear that, my cat. My cat is trying to get in. So let me wrap this up. <laughs> uh, once again, you can help spread the word about the podcast and this science communication series by sharing it on social media, passing it along to your SciComm loving buddies, and leaving kind reviews of the podcast online. Okie doke. Thank you so much for listening. Next week, right on the 4th of July, Independence Day, I'll see you back here to talk about how social science can jump from the research lab to the creation of public policy. One of our frequently asked questions from legislators is, why are researchers doing this? Who's paying you? They want to know kind of the special interest of like, why? And it's kind of a credibility thing that we can even say. Researchers aren't even getting paid for their time. They're, they're just here because they want their work to matter and make a social impact. They want to make a difference. They want to help people. I'm Taylor Scott, and I am the director of research translation platform at Penn State's Evidence to Impact Collaborative and the co-director of the Research to Policy Collaboration. 